0: Good morning, everyone. You sound wonderful today. What a joy to be with you today uh, at this church, at this time. I'm so glad to be here with you. Last week, I was with the members of our team. We were in Kerala, India, in the northern part of that state of India, and we were celebrating a wedding of a guy who we partnered with, it was his daughter, and we partnered with him over the last eight years to build orphanage, church planting, do some incredible ministry, and at the end of our service time together, I'm going to share with you just a little bit about some of that, we have some pictures for you, that sort of thing, and um, there were multiple moments while I was standing there in Kerala at this wedding, at a church service the day before, and what was on my heart and mind was how grateful I am for you, for this church, for my church family. Uh, The truth is, is eight years ago, people who called this church home in obedience to a prompting from God decided to give this church that we partner with there, we call it 4C India, some money to build a church building. And on Sunday last, I was standing in that church facility that you built, um, worshiping God with my extended church family and just sensing the presence of God and being overwhelmed with gratitude for you, for your partnership in the gospel. And I was blown away with this idea that there could be disciples in North Cincinnati who would honor the prompting of God, follow it in obedience, give some money to build a church halfway around the world, literally about as far as you can go before you start coming home again. And God would use that church for now almost a decade to rescue the fatherless, to come alongside the widow, to support women who were in, an un, uh, in a really just ugly, dark situation, to do church planting, to do ministry, and just what a joy it was. And then I stood with about 1,200 other people at this wedding. I don't know what I expected, a couple hundred people. There were about 1,200 people showed up at this wedding, and I got to stand there and look out into the crowd and see my extended church family, many of whom whose names I don't know. And I had the same feeling, just gratitude for my family back home, who helped make all of this happen, so just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're our guest here, you should know you're around some incredibly generous people who regularly follow promptings of God in their own life and in ministry, and God's kingdom grows because of it. You're certainly in the right place. And just before we jump into a brand new message series today that I'm so excited about, I also want to say thank you to two people, uh, specifically who were here last week when I wasn't. uh, Pastor Tim, who gave the message. How many of you were here last week? Didn't he do a great job? Didn't he do a phenomenal job? Yeah, you can give it up. Yeah, just so happy with him. And then uh, one of our previous staff members, a guy we call Craig or Pastor Craig, pastors in Nashville, was here and kind of introduced him to you. And uh, Craig served with this church years ago. We were meeting then in a theater and in a borrowed church building in a high school. And he was our student pastor at the time. And God has just used him dramatically. And they both shared with me how gracious and kind you were. And I knew that was gonna be the case and how welcome they felt. So just thank you for that. It's a great joy for me to be able to step away and know that you would receive the Word of God preached with boldness and clarity uh, as you did last week. So just uh, thank you for that. And for the team that stayed behind that was here, that made things happen, um, just what a joy it is to work with such quality people. All right? So if you have your Bible and you want to go to Ephesians chapter 1, put your thumb there. We're beginning a brand new series called Identity Thief. Identity Thief. Now, identity theft is a big deal. Uh, you know about it financially. You hear commercials on the radio. One of the major company has come on the scene to help you deal with financial identity theft. It's called LifeLock. You probably have heard their commercials. I don't own any stock. I'm not suggesting it, but they tell you that people are out to get your identity, to spend your credit, to get access to your credit cards. And if they do, LifeLock will help you identify when it's happening and get your stuff back because identity theft financially is a really, really big deal. It's destructive. It happens all the time. Somebody gets a hold of a credit card number, and the next thing you know, you're buying stuff off of Amazon in India, and you've never been there and had no idea what you were doing, and it happens, all right? So identity theft financially is a big deal. And some of you, you've been around some middle school kids, right? And you know what happens when a middle school kid is not comfortable in who they are? Sometimes you can see it in high school and even into college age, And so a kid will identify who they are, have a sense of who they are based on the people around them. And they're very, very swayed by what people around them think. And so because they're not comfortable in their own skin, sometimes at that age, they're very susceptible to what they think people expect from it. And their identity in terms of their development and socially and emotionally is not solid enough. And it can create all kinds of chaos in that kid's life if they don't grow to the place of being comfortable in their own skin. So identity theft can be bad financially. It's bad kind of sociologically and developmentally. And identity theft, identity issues can be a big problem spiritually as well. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to go to this book in the Bible called Ephesians. It's a very rich, rich piece of literature. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us in all the Bible. And it speaks directly to identity issues. It tells us two big things. I'm going to reveal exactly where we're going for the next few weeks. When we read the book of Ephesians, it tells us an awful lot about what God is like. We get a clearer picture of God. We see Him more clearly. We see His power on display. We see His love on display. We see His grace on display. There's language about God's justice and mercy on display in this text. This book is about God. And when you read it with an open heart, you're going to walk away with a stronger sense of who God is. You're going to know Him more, you're going to see Him more clearly. But well, something really cool happens every time, every time disciples see God more clearly. Every time a disciple sees God more clearly, they grow in their understanding of who he is, something profound happens. They don't just get head knowledge about God. What also happens is, is as you get to know God better, you get to know yourself better. So this book is going to give us a profound sense of who God is, going to grow our understanding of that. But what's going to happen as a consequence of that is when you see God better, you get to see yourself better. When you come to understand who God is in his power, in his might, in his grace, in his supreme existence and all that that means, when you get to understand exactly who God is, the impact is going to be that it's going to literally help you straighten your spine, spiritually speaking, and walk with greater confidence, not arrogance, but confidence and boldness because as you know God more and you know who he has made you to be in him, It changes your perspective, your attitude. There's boldness. There's two big words that are gonna come to us we're gonna read today. There's grace that comes to us when we see God more and there's peace that comes to us when we see God more. I've been doing ministry for almost 30 years and if there's two words that I believe this church and I would suggest a lot of Christians around the world need more of, they need a greater understanding of God's grace because that'll change you when you realize just how amazing it really is and a deeper experience of the peace of God in our lives, because this world can be chaotic, but to the child of God who sees God for what he is and begins to get a picture of who God has made him or her to be, what happens is grace and peace begins to define their walk with him and it changes everything. Now, there are about three groups of people I wanna talk to you for just a moment. There's a handful of you here and that your life with Christ would be defined generally in these terms. There was a season in the past when you were, we'll use the phrase, more on fire for God. You were more aware of his presence in your life. You were more determined to follow him in obedience. You were excited. Your imagination was lit up with the things of God. That was a normal thing for you. There was a season in your past where that describes you, but today that's not true for you. And one of the reasons why we're turning to this book over the next few weeks, as we get ready for Christmas, we talk about God's gift of Jesus into the world, is is I want to help people who know what it is to be lit up with the things of God, whose imaginations are sparked by the things of God, who know what it is to dream about the things of God. I want to call you back to that enjoyable place where grace and peace marked your way. It's possible that the things of this world have been a distraction to you. It's possible you've been hurt by somebody. It's it's possible that there's honestly unrepentant sin in your life and it's just a block between you and God. It's possible that you just haven't been in the word of God enough and the things of this world have captured your attention. This book, what it's going to do for you, it's going to call you back to the center of your faith, which is an unbelievable, almost hard to imagine God who's great and powerful and good And he's done incredible things for us. It's going to help you to see God more clearly. And it's going to help you see yourself more clearly. And it's going to right size you in God's world. And I bet you for some of us, if you'll open your heart fully and give yourself to this text with a humble attitude, it might reignite a flame that's grown a little dim. And then there are some Christians here and you've been in a pretty good season of your faith and you're engaged Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Same kind of thing. You're going to get your eyes lifted and you're going to see this God who has called you his son or his daughter. And it's going to pull you deeper in. And the things of this world that are all around us all the time, they're going to grow dimmer as God grows brighter for you. And it's going to help you to stand up in a way that maybe you haven't yet. And you're going to be able to face the world as a son of the king, as a daughter of the king. And when you do it, it's not that you are elevated where there are no problems. That's not what I'm suggesting is going to happen at all. In fact, quite the opposite. The problems are going to come. The challenges are going to come. But this time through, because you've grown and you've got a bigger picture of God and you've matured in your faith, what's going to happen is, is that it's not going to touch you in the same way. Oh, you're going to know there are challenges and difficulties. As long as we're in the world, Jesus says, you're going to have trouble. So it's coming. But when it comes to you, it's not going to impact you in the same way because you now have a bigger and better and more accurate picture of the God who is greater than any circumstance and the God who is at work in you. That no matter what comes against you, the one who's in you is greater than the one that comes against you. And then thirdly, there might be a handful of people here who will hear me talk about how awesome God is. And how wonderful it is to be his child, to be called into a relationship with him. And you don't yet know him. Our hope would be through this study over the next few weeks, A's, that you would join us. We built this church with you in mind. We built this church so that it would be normal for disciples to grow in their faith, to mature, and people who don't yet know Jesus to step into a relationship and begin their own growth. So stay with us. But our hope is, is that you would come to know through the pages of this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Paul to a local church, but really to all of us as well. Our hope is is that as we look at it, your heart would grow, your understanding of God's grace offered to you. The power of God on display, available to you in your life would become real to you and you would submit yourself to his lordship in your life. That's our whole hope. So we come to this text for the next few weeks, honestly, with like trembling hands of excitement, not nervous, but excited. And I want to tell you something, um, and I hope those of you that don't know me, this may not mean anything to you. Those that know me, have been with me for a few years, you know I do do my best to not exaggerate. I always get nervous when I feel like preachers feel like they have to kind of lie for God and make things better and better than they are. I don't do that, all right? So I want to tell you, for weeks now, I have prayed about this message series, and I believe God is going to use this to do dramatic things, In our church, something happens when you come to a text with humility and you say, you're the king, I'm the servant. Now teach me, Father. Teach me. Show me. Change me. Mold me. Break me. Help me see you more. In one sense, it's the whole reason why Christians gather anyway. I mean, why go to church on a Sunday morning? You can probably get better preaching online, honestly. I'm certainly not the greatest. But what happens is, is when you come to church in a situation like this, you join with brothers and sisters and imagine what already happened here in this space today. We begin to lift our voice and we sing about, about the God who saved us and his power at work among us. And we, we, we declare things that are true, even if our experience at the moment, don't bear them out. Things like this, that in God, because of the power of God, change will fall. That's true. Now, you may still have some chains relationally in your marriage, in your mind, in your heart, but because God is powerful and real, when you sing songs you're about the power of God that breaks chains, your eyes go up towards him, and it begins to change your perspective. You see God differently, and you see yourself differently. We get together, and we sing about the grace of God on display in our hearts, and fear falls away. And we remind ourselves that we're no longer slaves. We're children of God. And we're reminded about just how amazing this thing called grace really is. And it begins to change what's going on around us. There's probably no better book in the Bible to read to give you a more profound and clear sense of who God is than the book of uh, of Ephesians written to the church at Ephesus. And there's probably no better book to help you as a son or daughter of the king to take your rightful place as one who's crowned with dignity and honor, one who's called to a high purpose, one who understands the weight of the life God has given you such that the sins of life that can distract and trip you up no longer have their same appeal. That helps you deal with just the chaos of life in our broken world and yet walk with peace inside that's difficult for the people around you to understand. When I was in India, one of the things that perplexed me the most, and I took most joy in because I understand just enough to appreciate it now, is that these people who have virtually nothing compared to us. Walk in deep joy And they're so welcoming to anybody who's a part of the family of God. There's very little bickering about position and title and authority and influence. It's all about we're in this thing together. And when they sing the joy of God is present in them, they have a strength that really proves the lie that that our enemy offers us. That if your life is right, if your circumstances are good, if you're feeling good internally, and if your marriage is awesome, and if everything, then you can have the power and the favor of God. That's a lie. The truth is, is because God is great, and greater is He that is in us than is He who is in the world, because that is true. It's exactly when difficulties come. It's exactly while you're in the middle of challenges that the peace of God washes. Over your soul, and you're reminded that this world is not all that there is. What I see is not the only reality. But there's a God who's bigger than all of this. He's so powerful that He can even redeem the ugliness and make it beautiful. That's the story of several people in this room. Dark and ugly things happened to you, it was the trial of your life, it was the testing of your identity. And God turned it to a testimony. He didn't just redeem you out of a situation and make life grand. No, 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 no. You walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but you walked through it. This is the power of seeing God more clearly as a disciple. You begin to see that he's bigger than everything else around you. And those things that capture your attention, that get into your mind, that keep you awake at night, they have a place. You gotta deal with some of that stuff. But at the end of the day, their place is literally at the feet of the king of the universe who looks at you and calls you his son, looks at you and calls you his daughter. So I want you, as your pastor, if you'll let me, and if you don't count me as your pastor, fine, do it for your own good. I want you to open this text over the next few weeks. Go with us on this journey. Open it in your home and say a simple prayer, God, clearly, clearly in this text, Help me to know you more clearly. And what he'll do is he'll give you a bigger picture of him. And also alongside with it, hanging right beside, you're going to get a greater picture of who you are in him. And I want to tell you something. If you could see yourself the way your heavenly father sees you, it would change everything for you. Every once in a while, I'll get a glimpse of it. of Just exactly how loved I am. And the challenge for me is when I get a glimpse of it, is I realize that if I'm totally honest with you, I'm 50 now, there's no need to pretend, all right? I realize that I'm not as lovable, really, deep down as he loves me. And it humbles me. And everyone's right when I get a sense of just how profound he wants to make my life count. And I know deep down I'm not really worthy. And I haven't earned that. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to live up to it. It humbles me. It makes me feel so special. And the truth is, is if you could see yourself the way your heavenly father sees you, it would change everything for you. If you could see yourself the way your heavenly father sees you, then what other people see you as, oh, while it matters, of course, it doesn't matter as much. When you look in here and you tell yourself whatever it is you tell yourself about you, It matters, but when you see yourself the way your heavenly father sees you, it doesn't matter as much. And when the enemy whispers lies into you, when he uses circumstances of this world to convince you of certain things that are not true, but you wrestle with them, when you see God more clearly and you see how he sees you more clearly, those lies have a way of dissipating like fog as the sun comes out in the morning. This is why I want you to get into the text This is why I want you to receive the gift of God's word. It's a gift of grace that when we receive it, it literally feeds our soul. It nourishes our spiritual minds. It awakens us. It gives us energy to face life in this world as God has called us to face it. And so six chapters, 155 verses, 20 minutes to read it out loud to yourself in a quiet room. Several times over the next few weeks. And what will happen is, is you get a bigger picture of God and you'll get a clearer, clearer picture of how God sees you and it will change everything. I really do believe it. That's not an exaggeration. Now the story of Ephesians, the letter in our Bible written by Paul to the church at Ephesus actually begins back at Acts chapter 19. So if you want to put your finger at Ephesians 1, scroll back in your Bible a handful of pages to Acts 19. I want to show you where this story begins. Paul has been hanging out with Priscilla and Aquila, two major influencers in the New Testament. And while he's with them, he's prompted by the spirit of God to move on to a different region. And he's prompted actually to make a trip through Ephesus, which is a major crossroads town. It's a major town where significant things are happening. Um, There's four major roads that combine. There's a major Colosseum. There's a major temple to a god there by the name of Diana or Artemis, same person, Greek-Roman. There's a lot of witchcraft, demonic activity. And Paul goes to Ephesus, this major town, that if you were a citizen of Ephesus, it's almost as good as being a citizen of Rome. Like, to live in Rome was really cool, especially if you're a Roman citizen. But if you couldn't live in Rome, to live in Ephesus, a seaport town, lots of commerce, educated religious activity, culture, all that's going on. So Paul makes a trip to Ephesus because God has sent him on a journey to share the gospel, wherever he goes, to help people see God more clearly, to understand God's grace more clearly, and to be changed by it. And so he goes to Ephesus and he starts teaching in these little house groups. There were some early followers of Jesus. They were Jewish, but they had committed their lives to Jesus. They're in Ephesus doing business, most likely, so Paul's meeting in the towns and he's teaching. And while he's doing that, there's just some discombobulation in the group. You can read that in Acts chapter 19, the first few verses. So Paul finds a local hall owned by a guy by the name of Tyrannus. We get Tyrannosaurus Rex, a tyrant from that. So this guy named Tyrannus, he owns a hall where it would have been normal for people to stand up and give eloquent speeches to Give oratory, uh, you know, presentations, and rhetoric was a big deal at this time. So it was kind of a highfalutin place. And Paul comes into this place of deep education, and he's the guy who's going to take his chance to tell the story of Jesus. And the Bible says for two years Paul meets in this meeting hall, and daily he expounded about Jesus. He would read Old Testament scriptures and he would talk about how Jesus was the fulfillment of this. For two years, they had the apostle Paul teach directly. Now, Paul's also under house arrest. He's never more than a few feet away from a Roman soldier because he's on his way to Rome to hear his case tried. Eventually, he's going to go to Rome and have his life taken. But right now, he's in the middle of engaging this city of Ephesus in teaching about Jesus. And man, people are turning to Jesus right and left. And they outgrew the home situation and that little bit of challenge, whatever it was that they were having, gave way to this bigger room, which really just meant there was more people that could be reached. And in just a matter of two years, almost everybody in the region had heard about Jesus. They didn't know it all, but they had heard a little bit about it. And it was creating major commotion. This was a very spiritual city. Everybody was spiritual, whatever whatever that means. I'm not sure it's any more defined today than it was then, but they all kind of had some connection to the invisible, they thought. And truthfully, spiritual forces were very much at work. Both the spiritual force of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and dark forces ultimately connected to the evil one. They're both at work. This being Halloween and all, It's really a great time to kind of talk about this just a little bit. I mean, I'm not trying to get you not to worship on Satan's high holy day or anything like that. But in Acts chapter 19, there's some spiritual skirmish that sounds like a horror flick. There are a group of silversmiths, and they're in a little bit of a guild, a little uh, group together, and they're protecting each other's work, kind of like a a, a bit of a union And their primary um, way of making money is to make little idols to Diana or Artemis. And people would come from all over Ephesus as they were passing through, and they would buy these little silver idols, and they would worship it to get favor on their business, favor on their travel, favor to have more children in their family or whatever. But as Paul started talking about God and people got a clearer sense of the work of Jesus, they started, the Bible said, not buying as many of these silver idols And so the work of Jesus began to spread, and it started affecting one of the primary commercial endeavors of the town. And everybody was fine with Paul talking, but when it started affecting their pocketbooks, that's a problem. And at one point, the Bible says that this very spiritual culture, they all pulled out their witchcraft books on how to cast spells and how to curse people and how to get favor and how to say the right things in front of these silver idols that they're not buying anymore. They brought all their books, and they burned them in the city center. The message of Jesus was so life changing to them that they they weren't just adding Jesus to their life, trying to fit him in where they could. He was literally working from the inside out, such that all the things that didn't line up with being a follower of Jesus, they were beginning to cast off. Following Jesus means you can't worship an idol. No more idols. Following Jesus means we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not cursing people. We're not doing witchcraft. We're not trying to control an uncontrollable world. We are servants of the most high God. So all of these books have to be burned. And thousands of dollars, the Bible said, in modern equivalency, pieces of silver, thousands of pieces of silver's worth of material was burned up. And the whole town was shaken in a matter of a couple of years. Such is the power of the gospel. Such is the power of understanding who God is, is, is that it literally began to affect the private lives of people. By the way, this is the whole point of the gospel, anyway. Jesus is not something you add on, Jesus is not something you try to live up to. Jesus is something, and here's the phrase, that gets on the inside of you. You actually get in Jesus, in Christ. He gets inside of you in such a way that the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus, the light of God begins to push into all the dark crevices of your own life. And as God begins to clean you up from the inside out, as God begins to work on you from the inside out, then the light begins to radiate outside of you and it begins to touch every area of your life. It begins to touch the way you spend money. No more idols. No more witchcraft. Instead, now they're giving money to further the gospel in in the region. It begins to affect the way you do relationships. So there's going to be language in these six chapters. We're going to read about how to do relationships in a way that are lit with the light of Christ. And it's very different than the way the world typically does it. It begins to affect your thought life. It begins to affect how you see conflict with other people. So this light of God, a bigger picture of him begins to impact every area of life. And the gospel is on such display. And by the way, this isn't meant to be just a New Testament story. This is exactly how the gospel is supposed to operate today. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. For some of you, as I talk, you have a bit of a hope that this will be true. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you were lit with the light of God and the Holy Spirit was at work in your life and you're, you were drawn to the things of God, some of you are still there. For others of you, that's a past reality. This book is a gift from God inspired by the Holy Spirit, not just for the Ephesian church, but for all of us so that as we read it, our heart would be drawn back and up to the God who deserves it all. So that everything that distracts us from seeing him clearly could be easily cast off. It would be seen for the worthless idol that it is. So that while it may not be little silver idols made of Diana or Artemis, whatever it is that has taken our attention off God that helps us to not see him in his grandeur and in his greatness and in his might, whatever it is, is seen for the worthless artifact that it is. And we cast it off. This text is so powerful and so spiritual. This church is so powerful in the history of the New Testament. We have information about it in Acts chapter 19 and 20. We have the whole book of Ephesians about it. When Paul leaves Ephesus, he leaves Timothy in charge. So the book of 1 and 2 Timothy in your New Testament, when you read it, it's all about the church at Ephesus. It even shows up in the book of Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 and following. We know a lot about this church. And what made it so profound is that they had a clear picture of the risen Jesus, the power of God on display, and it lit them on fire. It helped them to see everything else correctly, most of all themselves. And they stiffened their spine, not in arrogance, but in confidence of what it is to be a child of the king. Deeply spiritual. In Acts chapter 19, I talked about how it began and how Paul went to the the hall to teach for two years. And then I talked about how at the end of the chapter, they uh, wanted to get rid of these idols. It created such a ruckus that these silversmiths They wanted to stone Paul, so they rush him into the big amphitheater. Some of Paul's friends kind of get him out, because they know they're going to stone you. You're dead. So they rush him out. And as they're pulling Paul away, here's what Paul says. He says, let me go back in. I want to go back in. I want to show them Christ more clearly, one more time, even if it costs me everything. They didn't let him go back in, but I'd like for you to get a picture of a guy who there's a throng of people. This This auditorium that they had rushed him into seats over 20,000 people. You can visit it today. seats over 20,000 people. And they're all chanting effectively, stone him, stone him, stone him. They had worked up the crowd. His enemies had worked up the crowd in such a degree. And some friends pull him back so he can't speak with clarity, and he's begging to run in. This is a man who is lit on fire with the things of God, such that even this life doesn't mean as much to him as it typically means to people who live it. And in the middle, in the middle, there's this interesting Halloween-like story where there are these people who don't know Jesus, but they've heard about Paul and the miraculous things that he's doing, and they're seeing the spiritual impact that Paul's preaching about Jesus is having to the point that people are turning away from false idols and turning to Christ. The church is in full force. And so they decide to use the name of Paul and the name of Jesus, who Paul talks about, to garner a certain amount of spiritual fame. There are seven brothers, sons of Sceva, the Bible says, who is a high priest in the Jewish service. And they go around doing exorcisms, you know, like Halloween. And so there's so much open spiritual dialogue happening in the community that they start going to people who are affected by dark forces, demonic forces. And they say things like this to them. In the name of Paul and in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches about, we command you to stop your oppressive use of this person and let them be free. And in one of those encounters, you can read this in Acts chapter 19, they go to this guy. And when they say that phrase, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches about, the voice inside the guy says, so now we're like, you know, Twilight Zone here, but it's real. This is Bible. Let's not pretend. This is not make-believe. This is real. The voice says to the people, catch this line, Paul, we know, and Jesus, we know. And we don't know you. And the Bible says the spirit that was inside this man that they're trying to exercise comes out of this man and jumps onto the seven sons of Sceva, beats them up, and takes off their clothes, and they go back home naked and bruised. Now, I'm from the south. If you're in a fight and you go home without your clothes on, you lost. That's, that's what that means, All right? So they lost. So notice, they're appealing to a power that they don't have an experience of. But interesting that in this spiritual struggle, there's Jesus who is well-known, and then there is the guy who is in Christ, Paul, and he's well-known. So with that backdrop, Paul starts this church. And In Ephesians chapter 1, we can pick up just a little bit of what Paul had to say. So on your message notes, here's what our text says. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. We'll just get through two verses today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, in the New Testament, when these letters are written, Paul writes 13 of them. It makes up about two-thirds of the content of the New Testament. In the letters or epistles written in the New Testament, you always begin by identifying who's writing. This makes sense to me. If you get a letter in the mail, you're probably like me. You look at the return address to see if you can figure out who it was. If not, you open it, and you probably skip the text to figure out who it's from first, right? So in the New Testament world, they just start with who it's from. And I want you to pay attention how Paul begins to identify himself. And this gives us a clue to what I believe would be a point of growth for most Christians I know, certainly for me. Paul defines himself by his name. He's Paul. used to be Saul. His name is changed to Paul when he commits his life to Christ. So he says, I'm Paul. And then he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, an apostle can be both a title and a role. I think in this context, Paul is saying, I'm operating in the role of an apostle. An apostle is a person who's called by God to share the gospel primarily in contexts where the gospel is not fully established where there's kind of like a front edge. You know, there's, there's like a front battle line and the gospel is new and fresh, encroaching on new territory. And so apostles are often associated with the gifting of missionary. And Paul is serving in the role of apostle here, who's been personally called by Christ when he met him on the road to Damascus. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, so catch it, here, here it is. His name is Paul. Right, that's a statement of fact but then he gives us not the noun, his name with the period. He gives us a qualifying phrase after the noun, Paul. And the qualifying phrase brings greater meaning to the noun. This is an, uh, a phrase that ap- operates like an adjective for those of you that were into English and parsing and diagramming and all that stuff. So the phrase... Paul, and then comma, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is the defining phrase for what Paul means, for the identity of Paul. Paul knew something that I'm hoping that you'll get, and I'll get a greater sense of as we read this text several times over the next few weeks. Six chapters, 155 verses, 20 minutes of reading time, multiple times over the next few weeks as we get ready for Christmas. Paul knew that his identity was best described, not simply as Paul, but as Paul, an apostle of, now the most important words in the sentence, Christ Jesus. So if I wanted to walk kind of in the shadow of Paul today, I would have got up and I would have said, oh, I'm so good to be with you. I'm so glad to be with you today. My name's Ben. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what's more important than my name is who I am in Christ. And I want to tell you something today. I don't know if you've thought about this tonight, but more important than your position, your title, and more important than how people see you, what people said about you, is who you are in Christ. This is the thing that helps stiffen the spine, bring joy that that supersedes circumstances, that can bring peace in the middle of chaos. It isn't that I'm Ben. That's not what's so powerful. It's that I am Ben, a child of the Most High King. I'm a son of one who gave his life for me. I'm a person who has been made in Christ. In fact, it's my entire identity ultimately. And when dark forces of this world that are still very active, it doesn't sometimes look like the New Testament world, but make make no mistake, the forces in Acts chapter 19 are still at work and their entire plan is to kill, steal, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. When they look at you and you're a child of God, they don't see you as Ben or Jill, my wife. They see me. They identify me, not by me, but they identify me by the one who saved me and brought me into him. And that phrase, in Christ, is used some 32 times in these six chapters, some version of it. It's the most important phrase in the book. Because when you're in Christ, everything is different. I'm Ben, a child of the King. I'm Ben, one who's been washed and redeemed. I'm Ben, who's not perfect by my behavior, but God chooses to see me as perfect because he's washed away my sins by the shed blood of Jesus. That identity of who I am in Christ is my ultimate identity. Now, all my life, people have tried to give me different identities. I was a student to some of my teachers, only a student. That's who I was, they were doing their job, they weren't bad people. I was a student, but that wasn't who I ultimately was. I'm a son to my parents, my a husband to my wife. These are all true, but they're not ultimate. Ultimately, my highest definition, the greatest definition of who I truly am at the core, because I have given my life over to Christ and he has saved me graciously. I didn't earn it. Who I really am is that I am a child of the king. Now, there'll be days you won't see that in me. I won't act like it. Or you're broken and even when I act like it, you won't give me credit for it. Fine, it's all good. But that's how God sees me. There are days my wife does not see me as a blood-bought, redeemed child of the Most High God because I'm not acting like it or she's not in a place to see it. But that's who I really am. This is really good news, by the way. I have four children. I have a lot of other sons and daughters, spiritually speaking. And there are days they don't at all act like children of the Most High God. And there are days it's very difficult for me to remember. That the greatest identifier of who they are at their core, the greatest statement of their value and worth is that they are blood-bought, washed, and redeemed. And I have to be reminded, sometimes as I'm interacting with people who God sent his son to die for, that the greatest statement of their identity is that they are in Christ. And that has changed everything. So Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then look what he says. So it's, it's, it's identity, and then he's going to tell us who it's written to. And in the NIV that's quoted for you there, the New International Version on the top of your page, it's uh, to the holy ones at Ephesus. To the holy ones at Ephesus. And th- that's an interesting phrase. If you're reading an English Standard Version, which is actually what I have on the podium up here, an English Standard Version or, or a New King, King James Version, it might say to the saints at Ephesus. The Greek word there is hagias, It means holy ones. Uh, those who have been washed, those who have been set apart. And this is a very powerful spiritual truth I want to leave with you. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, my greatest identity is that I'm in Christ. I'm of Christ. I'm connected to Christ. And then he says, to the saints at Ephesus. Now, I, I, I imagine when this letter was read for the very first time in front of the church at Ephesus and they begin, the reader begins, hey, this is a letter, Here it is. it's Paul, an apostle of Jesus. I bet they all thought, wow, Paul, what a great guy. Guys, remember when, it, when they almost stoned him? By the time he writes this letter, he's been gone for a while. He's probably actually at Corinth writing a letter back to the Ephesians church. It's been a few years now, maybe four years or so. You guys remember when they almost killed him? Paul, man, if anybody's an apostle, it's Paul. And they're loving the first line of 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 that letter. But then they get to the second line. I, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the holy ones at Ephesus. And I bet you at that point, people stumbled. I bet you at that point, they had a different thought than, this is awesome, because there would be people who were listening to that letter read for the very first time, and they would know something about them that maybe you know about you, because you don't always act like a saint. That's what you're called, by the way. Repeatedly in the scripture, children of God are called saints. Not just saints, the kind that, those of you that grew up Catholic, that you pray to or you venerate, um, not, not those But regular everyday Christians who've given their life over to Jesus are called saints. And so begins a bit of an internal dialogue that can happen. I'm a saint in Ephesus, but I don't often act like a saint. There are times in my life when I act like anything but a saint. And this brings us to a reality that is a statement of faith that if you grab hold of it it can change everything for you it goes back to being in Christ. When Christ redeems you by his blood and brings you close to him, what actually happens is, is that he chooses to see you not defined by the sin and the mistakes and the failures of your life. He chooses to see you through the blood of Jesus that's applied to your life. So you are positionally holy because you're positionally close to Jesus. Before Jesus, you were positionally away from Jesus. Your sin separated you. And when you came to Jesus the very first time, you didn't get close to Jesus because you got perfect. And as you got more perfect, you got close to Jesus. No, 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 no. The blood of Jesus was applied to your life. And positionally, God moved you from the back of the room and gave you a seat right next to him. You're a saint because the grace of God is that powerful, not because you're that good. This is good news. This is good news because every day you don't act like a saint, you could tell yourself it would be a lie that somehow I've moved positionally away and at some point I'm moving so far away I'm not a child of God. But that's the wrong way to see this. When you understand the power of the grace of God on display to his children, it's very much like a healthy family here on earth. On my kids' worst day, and we've had some bad ones, We've had some bad ones, but on my kids' worst day, they weren't not my kids. I didn't, now listen, I didn't always feel loving towards them, but I loved them down deep somewhere. (laughs) Sometimes I had to reach way deep and remember that. But God, our perfect father, here's what he's able to do. My kids aren't acting holy, but the blood of Jesus is stronger. It's more powerful. It's the truest definition. So they are positionally saints. You're a saint today. Now, on the way home, don't try to convince your spouse of it. They live with you. But you convince yourself, God chooses to see me as a saint. And here's the intended point, then, is that if you're a saint before God, it doesn't mean you do whatever you want and doesn't matter. No, no, no. Paul wrote in other places, we don't sin so that grace abounds. Instead, the grace of God is meant to produce in us a sense of gratitude. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe that my heavenly Father loves me so completely that on the day I act like the worst Christian possible, He loves me completely and calls me his own. This is meant to compel us to follow him more boldly and more completely and to lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us because it's simply a false idol anyway. And we see him more perfectly in his grace and in his power, justifying his justice, and it compels us further in. We realize we don't often live up to the call of saints. But God still chooses to see us as his holy ones, blood-bought and redeemed. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the holy ones at Ephesus. And then look at this next line. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Let me ask you, child of God, for just a moment. How is the grace and peace going? You walking in the confidence that your sins are redeemed, that they're washed and gone? Six different places in the book of Ephesians. We have the before and then the later commentary. The It used to be this way, but now it's this way commentary. It used to be that you were dead in your transgressions and sin and couldn't save yourself. But now God, who has bestowed his grace upon you, has risen you with him to new life. You used to be adulterers, drunkards, swindlers, slanderers. That was the past. But now... You are redeemed and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's no longer your identity. You're new in him. Six different times we're reminded of the power of the grace of God being applied to our life. Are you walking in confidence today? That grace is truly at work in your life? I mean, let me tell you one of the ways you know that you are. You don't continue in your sin when you're confident of the beauty of the grace of God. You're actually ashamed and convicted by your sin. Your own sin sickens you because God still loves you so much. How could he? And grace, on the one hand, makes you feel so grateful, and on the other hand, it makes you so humble. Grace and peace. Man, if this world needed anything, it's peace, isn't it? I mean, there's chaos in homes. There's chaos in marriages. There's chaos in parenting. There's chaos at work. There's chaos in our culture. There's chaos in our government. And to all of that, Jesus stands, and he speaks to his kids, and he says, Peace. Peace. Like he stands between his disciples and the storms of the sea, and he says, peace, be still. And Sometimes I'm wondering, is he talking to the waves in the sea, or is he really talking so his kids can hear him and see how much power he has to speak peace in the middle of chaos? How's it going, disciple? Grace and peace are yours because you're in Christ. You're like the caterpillar in the silk cocoon. You're maybe... You may be exposed to the elements, but you don't know it because you're inside, you're in him. And he's still working, turbulence all around you, but he's working on you, molding and shaping you, metamorphosizing you into what he's calling you to be. This is what it means to be in him. And your message notes, let me just give you the blanks because I think it may help you. As you read this text, I want you to have the heart of David where he said, open my eyes that I may contemplate wonderful things from your instruction. When you read this book, God opened my eyes. I want to see you more clearly. I want to see me more clearly. I want to know you more through this. And I think if you'll come humbly to this text and be putting on the hat of a student, God, teach me here, I think literally it can change you. I want you to hear the text fully. So, H E A R, let me give you the blanks. I want you, as you're reading the text over the next few days, to highlight a few phrases because it stood out to you. For me, in chapters one and two, it was grace and peace. Grace and peace. Highlight those words. Perhaps in your Bible, it's okay to write or on another sheet of paper grace and peace. And then the E, in your own words, explain what this text means in a sentence or two. Grace, I receive from God what I have not earned. I get more than I deserve, and I don't get the ugliness that I actually do deserve. And it's free to me. And then peace. In the middle of chaos, he speaks peace to the storm. Grace and peace. Then the A is what would an application of this spiritual truth look like in your life? In Three to five, two sentences. Write down ways that these ideas may apply to your life. Ben, you need to walk in greater confidence that grace is real. And rather than letting it make you sloppy in your spiritual work, let it motivate you to live in gratitude and humility before God and men. Ben, when things are chaotic around you, you need to remember that you you serve the peace-speaking God who has control of the wind and waves. And if he has control of the wind and waves, he can have control over your life. You need to remember that more when things are chaotic around you. H-E-A-R. And then how would I respond to this? So in a handful of ways, write down things that you can do to respond to, for me, grace and peace now. So as you're reading, highlight a section. Explain it in your own words to make sure you have a good grasp of it. Think about how it might apply to your life when you read about who you are in him. And then how are you gonna respond to that? I said, rather than getting caught up in self-defeating language or arrogant language, I'm going to regularly thank God for his grace at work in me. And his grace is the only reason I have a right to be called his child. And when things are chaotic around me, when people are chaotic around me, I'm going to remember that I serve a peace-filled God. So I want you to hear the word of God. And I want you to see a handful of things at the bottom of your notes. Before we jump into that, look at Matthew 7, 7. I want you to basically have this attitude for the next few weeks. Keep asking, and it'll be given to you. Keep searching and you're fine. Keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. I want you to have a heart that is thirsty for the things of God, because who God says you are is more powerful than how you feel you are. At the end of time, when we stand before God, it's His declaration of your identity that's going to be what matters. It doesn't matter what your teacher thought about you, your parents or your spouse or your kids. it matters what God thinks about you. And once you see God more clearly, then you can see yourself more fully as you really are. Once you see Jesus more clearly, you can see yourself as you really are. And if you are in Christ, the truth is is you're in the family with all the rights and the privileges that come with that. It's kind of like the mafia, but in a good sense. Like you're in your family. Like you don't get out. I remember a few months ago I was standing in a Hamilton courtroom with David and Courtney Rice. Dave plays the drum. Courtney serves around here. And we had been on this journey with them as they were trying to adopt. I'll never forget when the judge looked at them and said, are you sure you want to do this? Because if you're not sure, you need to back out now because once we sign this document, this adoption is irrevocable. This is what it means for you and I when we are adopted by our heavenly father into his family. It's irrevocable. That's how powerful our God is. And finally, through Christ, grace and peace are yours. I want to ask you one more time, are they? Or can you, with me, go on a journey where you say to God, God, one more time, speak to me through your word. Lighten, fan into flame the work that you're doing in my heart. Dry the the wet wood. Blow your breath upon me. Speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. I believe if you can see God more clearly, you'll see yourself more clearly. And I think if you see yourself more clearly, it'll change the way you walk in this world. Why don't you grab out your Connect card, and we'll take a couple steps together as a congregation. I've been talking about the God who rescues and redeems, and it's possible you have not yet committed your life to Jesus. Today is a great day to become a child of God. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I'm going to ask you to do this in a minute when I pray. Say to God, God, I cannot save myself. I received the free gift of salvation offered by your grace into my life. I trust the work you did for me, Jesus, when you gave your life on a cross and you were resurrected from the tomb. I trust the work you did to save me because I can't save myself. We'd ask you to take your pen, check next step, A, and I'll send you a communication about what it means to be a child of God. A member of our staff won't harass you, but we'll follow up with you and answer any questions that you have. Or perhaps next step B, I want to be baptized on December 8th, where we will celebrate the fact that, we, that you were dead in your sins, but you were raised to life in Christ. That's what we do in baptism, and that you're new in him. Or how about next step C? Listen to me, disciples, come on. Let's just get in the word. There's no excuse. God gave us Facebook and Instagram to remind us we always did have time to spend time in his word. It's amazing. It's amazing. Ten years ago, we weren't doing any of this stuff. And then we all got 30 minutes, an hour, hour and a half a day. You do have time to get in his word. You're living under a deception where you don't think it's urgent. So wipe away the lies and get in his word. Next step C, I'll read Ephesians this week and ask God to help me see him more clearly and to see myself as he sees me. Next step D says, uh, send me the link for grow. Next week is grow one, becoming a member. Now, next week, we have a membership meeting. If you're not a member, you can go to Grow One and then stay for the membership meeting. In that membership meeting, we're going to talk a lot more about India and tell you some cool things that are happening, how the ministry is growing and expanding, and some challenges have arisen and how we're going to help them address that. It's a beautiful story, and God's not done uh, doing his work there. And we're going to talk about where the church is headed in 2020 as well. So this is a membership meeting. If you have gone to Grow One, uh, you're and sign the covenant. You're a member. If you haven't, the way you come to that meeting is you go to Grow One. All right. And the next step is says, sign me up to serve at the Healing Center. For our guests, you may not know, but the first Saturday of every month we serve locally here. So this week, uh, the first Saturday of November, um, we will be serving at the Healing Center at 9:30. Check the box. We'll send you the link all about it. So once you set that aside, Pastor Will is joining me up on the stage right now to tell you just a little bit about India. Um, as we get ready to give God a portion of what he's blessed us with, I want you to know that your gifts for the last eight years have made a profound difference. Will, tell us about what God's doing.
1: Yeah, we had such a great, great time in India this past week. We got back on Thursday at 2 a.m. And I have a photo, uh, a few I wanna show you. On the left is Ninu and on the right is Wesley. And we were able to, as a team, experience a wedding in India with these two. There's another photo I'll show you. Um, And she is just beautiful. And it was such a fun and awesome experience. What's really neat about this is the girl to the right of Ninu, her name is Aksa, and she was the first orphan that Pastor James took in in India. She was eight years old. Her mother wanted to sell her for 40 U.S. dollars, and James said, that's not possible. You can come live with us. And so she was able to be a bridesmaid uh, in India at the wedding. There's another photo I want to show you. Uh, what's really neat is we were able to do worship with the man on the far left. Uh, his name is Robin. He's a pastor. And the guy on the far right is Goodwin. And these were our worship leaders. And we were able to do worship with them. And I believe God knitted our hearts together with these uh, these two guys. And this is their family at their church. There's another photo. You'll see this is uh, Sunday morning in the church that we built uh, here at Four Corners. Uh, we prayed over Nino. And there's Pastor Ben and Joseph behind Uh, And James to the right just lifting her up in prayer. It's hard to put into words how meaningful this this moment was. There's another photo. Uh, This is us getting ready. Uh, We're in suits, uh, but it's really, really hot. And so we're ready to go out there and just sweat it out. Man on the left is Ryan. You see Bubba in there who we love. This is the team that we took. We have one more photo here. uh, This is the hall that was rented out, actually a Catholic hall. And in it, you see about 700, 750 people who came out for the wedding. But what you don't see is all the way around, kind of in a U shape, uh, were people from the community uh, who who came out. So there's over a thousand people at this wedding. And there were some that were Christians. There were some that were Hindu. There were uh, some that were Muslim. There were some who really didn't believe anything. And they came out and Pastor Ben was able to give a gospel message uh, at this wedding. And, and this wedding also allowed us to meet pastors and meet girls and meet boys and meet families that we would have never been able to meet ever before. And we're going to talk a little bit about it next Sunday and then also at the members meeting. And God did some extraordinary stuff uh, while we were there. And it was just a privilege. And your generosity made it happen.
0: So for eight years, God's been doing the work in India. We've been able to be a part for eight years and uh, just thank you thank you so think about this Uh, your obedience here to establish a place of ministry where disciples get to grow people get to turn their life to Jesus we call it real love now it became a springboard a catalyst for ministry halfway around the world and I just want to tell you it is not wasted it is not wasted the money you give here makes a profound difference here and around the world and I'm so excited over the next few weeks to share with you more of how that's going to happen. Can you pray with me right now about our next steps in our offering? Father, thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you that you call us sons and daughters. I want to thank you, Lord, that no lie spoken over us by the world can stand in the light of your truth. Father, I pray that you would dispel lies. I pray that you would speak your truth into our hearts. God, I, I pray that we would not lie to ourselves about our our ability to engage your word over the next few weeks. Help us to find 20 minutes to read six chapters, 155 verses repeatedly. And Father, would you speak to us through your word? Would you nourish our souls? Would you empower us to stand against the onslaught of the enemy? God, would you reveal yourself for who you really are? Give us a bigger picture of you. We want to know you, Lord. And Lord, as you do that, would you give us confidence in who we are as your children? dispel the darkness, speak against the lies. And Father, right now, I lift up the man and the woman who's declaring, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. I trust the work that you did on the cross and in the resurrection to save me. I trust in that alone. And now, Father, would you take our next steps? Would you take our offerings? And God, would you use them for your glory to make your name famous in this area and around the world? We pray in the strong name of Jesus. The holy Son of God. Amen and amen.